Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet the warrior hermit of Tintern. Name, Tudrig. Life, 5th to 6th century A.D. Status, Saint, Feast, April 1st. If you had undertaken the dangerous journey, east to west, across the many kingdoms of Britain in the 5th century, and if you had crossed the river Way at the ford that was then by the village of Tintern, you might have seen a solitary figure moving near the river or the limestone cliffs. He was the hermit of Tintern, an old man living alone, seeking God in the wilderness. It was dangerous living alone in these times. In these days of blood and fire, as the Roman Empire imploded and Britain was abandoned to waves of raiders from the north, Robbers were everywhere, and even a hermit might seem like a good target. But as it happened, this hermit lived in the kingdom of Gwent, and it, along with the neighboring kingdom of Gluwissing, had been largely spared from the chaos. And besides, the old man had not always been a helpless hermit. Once upon a time, he had been one of the most feared men on the island. Before he renounced war and killing, the hermit had been known as Tudrig, son of Teethfault, king of Gwent and Glewissing in the southeast of modern Wales. Again and again, Tudrig had ridden out to meet the pagans, the Irish, the Scots, and more and more now the Saxons, who tried to intrude on his lands he had never lost a battle. And in time, Tudrig became so well-known and so feared that just the sight of him riding into battle would demoralize his enemies. But as the years passed, and he brought peace and order to his kingdoms, Tudrig found that his mind was more and more on spiritual things. And perhaps he was ready for another battle, a battle to subdue his flesh, his desires, and accept the will of God. And so, King Tudrig had handed over the kingdom to his son, Murig, and wandered out into the wild places. And it was among the limestones of Tintern that he had set up his hermitage. But Tudrig and his son were not living in simple times, and although Tudrig had set aside war and bloodshed, War was not yet done with him. The problem was that Gwent and Glewissing 
were places of wealth and stability in a Britain that was being transformed. The way the English abbot and later saint Gildas saw it, the problem had begun with the centuries of humiliation in which Britain had been annexed by the mighty Roman Empire. Centuries earlier, the Romans had swept over the island, subjugating the Britons. Eventually, the Romans had walled off the north to keep the troublesome Scots at bay. They had also put a stop to Irish raiders on Britain's western coast. The way Gildas saw it, it was embarrassing how quickly the Romans had overrun Britain. On this point, at least, the people of Gwent and Glewissing might hold their heads high. In that time, they had been known by the name of their Iron Age tribe, the Silures, and they had fought the Romans in a grinding 30-year campaign before finally being subdued. But then, after the Roman conquest, as Gildas would bitterly point out, the Britons had not tried very hard to regain their freedom. Rebellions had been few, and those there were were poorly executed, or so Gildas thought. As he saw it, the uprising led by the Queen Boudicca had no real plan for actually pushing the Romans out. Instead, the Britons had gotten used to the Romans solving their problems and fighting their wars for them. They had grown fat and comfortable and unmanly and brought down the judgment that came next. For things were not going well for the Roman Empire. In the 3rd century, the empire faltered and all but collapsed, but found its footing with some difficulty. The affairs of Britannia, at the northwest point of the empire, were not high on the Roman list of priorities. The 4th century was better, but as it came to an end, a rebellion broke out, led by a soldier with the self-promoting name Magnus Maximus, which means Great Greatest, who declared himself to be Emperor of Britain, Gaul, and Spain. And that was bad news for Britain, because Maximus needed troops from Britain to defend his eastern holdings, unsuccessfully, as it would turn out. As the 5th century opened, Rome was fading fast. Huge groups of barbarians were wandering through the empire, conquering lands as they went. Eventually, Rome made the hard decision to abandon Britannia, and the legions sailed away for the final time. Now, there were no Roman soldiers to hold off the raiders from Ireland and Scotland. But on the bright side, the Britons had basically had their lands given back to them, with Roman infrastructure tossed in as a freebie. Gildas thought it was the moment for Britons to take up arms and reclaim their homelands, and the real crime, the real foolishness, was what they did instead. It began with a king named Vortigern. He and his lords decided that in order to pacify the land, they would need mercenaries. Vortigern looked over at mainland Europe, where a still pagan people known as the Saxons were settling along the coast of the North Atlantic. They were known to be mighty warriors. Perhaps they would do the fighting that Britons did not want to do. And so, Gildas writes, Vortigern and his lords sealed Britain's doom 
by inviting in among them, like wolves into the sheepfold, the fierce and impious Saxons, a race hateful both to God and men, to repel the invasions of the northern nations. It did not take long for the Saxons to realize that if they were doing the hard work of fighting, they might as well rule the land. And so Vortigern's invitation prompted the vast invasion of Saxons, along with other Germanic peoples on the coast, Angles, Jutes, and Frisians, who rolled into the area that would take their name, Angleland, and pushed the Britons back. And it was in the context of that long war with the Saxons that the people who had once been the Silures again took up arms to defend the little enclave of Gwent and Glewissing. Under King Tudrig, they had been successful in holding back the darkness. Now, Tudrig had left to be a hermit, and his son, Murig, was in charge. It turned out the Saxons had been watching. They knew that Tudrig was undefeated. This young pup on the throne, though, might prove much easier to overthrow. And so the Saxons began to gather a vast army, headed west, intended to crush the kingdoms of Gwent and Glewissing once and for all. Murig heard about the Saxons before they arrived. Murig was young and untested. He understood the Saxon strategy, and in his heart he was afraid. So he thought of the one man he knew who had never shown his fear, who had defeated the Saxons time and time again, his father. If only his father could ride out with him. But Tudrig had laid down his arms, given up bloodshed, and dedicated himself to God. I have to imagine Murig kept running the idea through his head. Would his father help? Could he? The Saxons were headed for the ford at Tintern, so his father would even be near the fighting. Praying and hoping, Murig decided to bring his father's old warhorse, his father's armor and weapons, and just ask him to fight one last battle for his people, even though he knew that the answer had to be no. Or at least, the answer would have been no, if not for the fact that the night before Murig and his army arrived in Tintern, Tudrig the hermit had a dream. In the dream, an angel explained to Tudrig what was happening. The angel told him how he could help, but also keep his promises to God. And then the angel told Tudrig what a victory would mean. And then, perhaps a little more sadly, the angel explained what this victory would cost. In the morning, the army arrived, just as the angel had predicted. To Murig's surprise, Tudrig was ready to come with them. He cheerfully put on his armor, took his weapons in hand, and mounted his old war horse. And then the army rode on to where the Saxons were crossing the river Way into Wales. Murig's army met the Saxons near the river. Murig was an operational command, but Tudrig already knew his role in the battle. 
Without raising his weapons or shedding blood, he slowly rode into the center of the battle, where the fighting was thickest. The Saxons could hardly believe their eyes. They had heard that Tudrig was gone, but here he was, riding fearlessly out toward them. The sight of the undefeated warrior broke Saxon morale, and their army collapsed from the center outward, fleeing back over the river way. And for just a moment, it must have seemed to Tudrig as though the angel had gotten it wrong. But then a Saxon stopped in mid-flight and threw a spear back at Tudrig. It seems likely that the spear hit him in the head, smashing into his helmet and fracturing his skull, an injury still apparent more than a thousand years later when his relics were examined during a move. Tudrig knew that the wound would be deadly, but he also knew that it would not kill him right away. The angel had told him that the battle would cost him his life, but it would buy his people decades of peace. And so, to the Saxons' confusion, Tudrig responded to the fact that a spear had sliced open the side of his helmet and almost knocked him off his horse with a shout of victory. And indeed, it was a glorious victory. The Saxons had fled, leaving rich loot behind. King Murig asked his father to join him to enjoy the glory. But Tudrig said no. He had always been on God's business, and there was one more thing he had to do. Tudrig set out for the place where he would die. The tradition arose that, when he could not walk, a carriage came to take him the rest of the way, a carriage without a driver, drawn by wild stags. At any rate, Tudrig went back into the wilderness, and when he had found the place that he was looking for, he lay down to die. Murig's men went looking for him, and soon they told the king that his father's body had been found. The significance of this last journey was not lost on Murig. When his men found the body, they marked the spot. And Murig found a holy man, the future saint Eudokius, to build a church where his father had been found. As for Murig, he would rule long and fairly, and in time he would become a master of war like his father. His people would come to call him Great Leader, in their language Uther Pendragon, and his son King Arthwis, or as we would say, Arthur, would rule after him.